He gives the joy of his salvation. Oh, God's mercy so amazes me. Shalom. This is Betty McKinney. This is the fourth in our series, In the Footsteps of Jesus. And today we are in Capernaum. Behind me is the synagogue that you will find when you go to the ancient excavation of Capernaum. However, I'm sad to say that this synagogue that we encounter there is not the synagogue of Jesus' time. This synagogue was built in the 4th century. If you want to find traces of the synagogue of Jesus' day, you have to look under the synagogue. As you enter the synagogue and walk up the steps, you'll find stone that is not this, the Corinthian columns here and this light limestone, but you will find volcanic rock, basalt rock, which is the rock that everything was built of in Jesus' time, and it's black and it's rough. And the archaeology, um, the excavation of the town of, of Capernaum is all black volcanic basalt rock. Those are the building blocks to this ancient town, Capernaum. Capernaum was continually occupied from the 1st century B.C. to the 7th century A.D., it was a major town on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. And the synagogue, which sat below this one, <coughs> was a center for Roman taxation, of all things. And Capernaum had a permanent office of taxation. I told you last time about that road called the Via Maris that connects three continents, Africa, Europe, and Asia. Capernaum was situated on that trade route from Egypt to Damascus on the Via Maris. So it was a very strategic and important town. One of the other things Capernaum had was a customs office. Taxes are nothing new. <laughs> they were, that's why Jesus was born in Bethlehem, because Mary and Joseph had to pay taxes. And um, Capernaum contained a customs access, uh, office, a small Roman garrison, and it served as the border town between two provinces, Galilee and Galantis. Remember, Jesus called the tax collector Matthew from here. And um, on the other side, in Galantis, was the home of Philip, Andrew, and Peter in Bethsaida. I'm wondering if maybe they eventually moved to Capernaum to avoid paying the taxes as they brought the fish that they caught to the market in the center of Capernaum. Hmm. After being rejected in Nazareth, which we talked about in our last session, we talked about Nazareth, Jesus made Capernaum the center of his ministry in Galilee. <clears throat> he stayed at the house of Peter when he just wanted to have a, a home base. He performed many miracles in this town of Capernaum, including the healing of the centurion's servant, which we're going to look into today. Remember the story of the paralytic? They couldn't get into the house. The house was full of people listening to Jesus teach. There were so many people crowded around the house that his four friends climbed on top of the roof. When I go to Capernaum, I love to just imagine, I wonder where that happened. I wonder which of these excavated houses that might have been the place where these guys climbed on the roof. They began to tear apart the thatch that was the roof, which would have been beams of wood and straw, I mean very thick thatch, 
And it was all falling down on Jesus. <laughs> He's standing there teaching, and it's falling down as they are tearing apart the roof to lower their friends. When I go to Capernaum, I say, gosh, I wonder where that happened. And, you know, I just believe Jesus loved it. He didn't say, hey, who's interrupting my wonderful sermon here? Instead, he loved to see people that were that desperate to get to him, <clears throat> that were that determined to reach the Savior. Amen? Other um, other miracle that Jesus did was he healed Peter's mother-in-law so she could get up and make him lunch. <laughs> Even so, with all the miracles that Jesus did in this village of Capernaum, he ended up cursing it, saying it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment because of their unbelief. But today we're going to look at a story of someone who was not the norm of the average Capernaum citizen. <clears throat> we're going to go to Luke 7, 1 through 10, and... We're going to read about the centurion, who really is someone I have learned to admire and really look up to. So go with me, if you will, to Luke 7, and let's read the story. When he had completed all his discourse in the hearing of the people, he went to Capernaum. And a certain centurion's slave, let me say that right, a certain centurion's slave, who was highly regarded by him, was sick and about to die. And when he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his slave. And when they had come to Jesus, they earnestly entreated him, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this to him, for he loves our nation, and it was he who built us our synagogue. Now Jesus started on his way with them, and when he was already not far from the house, again at Capernaum, I wonder, I wonder which house was the, was the centurion's. It must have been out in the rich part of town. <clears throat> when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me, And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him and turned and said to the multitude that was following him, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. Hmm. I can tell you, as you look through the Gospels, Jesus only commended a few people for their faith. And it, it catches my eye that when he heard the faith of this centurion, he marveled at him. That's how rare it was for someone to express faith. Remember some of the people Jesus commended for their faith? This, this centurion who is um, to be counted with the, with the army of Rome, the, uh, the occupiers, <laughs> the alien occupiers, who arrest and beat and crucify Jews. Another person he commended was the story of Matthew 15, the Syrophoenician woman, who was a Gentile, despised and outcast, but she would not stop crying out to Jesus for the healing of her daughter. 
Remember that story, Matthew 15. Then there was the woman with the issue of blood, which, by the way, was also in Capernaum, who had the chutzpah to reach through the crowds, to, to reach through the legs of men and touch the hem of Jesus' garment. And Jesus turned to her and commended her for her faith. All of these people, the Roman, the Syrophoenician woman, and the woman with the issue of blood, were people that the religious Jews would call unclean. Think about that for a moment. So above race, this is something we need to understand about Jesus. Above race, status, someone's past, someone's circumstances, that's not what Jesus looks about. Looks at. That's not what he cares about. He's looking for faith. He can smell faith. And he turns toward the person who is demonstrating faith, even if they're considered the lowest of society, outcast, unclean. He's looking at us for faith. <clears throat> As I've told you before, Jesus broke social and religious and cultural taboos all the time. He never saw the exterior the, the stereotype. He saw the person inside. So when I read this story about the centurion in Luke 7, I want to touch the heart of Jesus like the centurion did. I want Jesus to look at me and see something he saw in the centurion. To have him marvel, to have him commend this man, that is something to be desired above anything I can think of. Amen? <clears throat> so let's, let's look a little deeper into this story and see five characteristics in the centurion that touch Jesus. And I don't know about you, but I want all five. <laughs> okay, number one, we see in verses four and five that he had the heart of God. He paid attention to the needs of people. He saw them as God sees them. Verse 4 and 5, it was not the centurion himself who came. It was some Jewish elders, Jewish elders, who should have seen the centurion as their enemy. Remember, Rome is an oppressive, occupying presence. They should have seen this man as their enemy. But the Jewish elders of the town are the ones who came and asked Jesus to help this man. It says in verse 4, when they had come to Jesus, they earnestly entreated him, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this to him, for he loves our nation. And it was he who built us our synagogue. You see, this centurion wasn't your normal Roman centurion. He had a love for the nation, and he had a love for the people of God. He, he um, also loved his servant. That's kind of unusual. I mean, servants are a dime a dozen. So in this culture of first century Israel, women were considered like less than possessions. You know, um, children, servants, they had no, no place in society. But this man loved the nation. He loved the people enough to say, I'm going to build you a synagogue. The center of their life. It wasn't just a place to go to worship on Saturday morning. It was the place where it was the fellowship hall of the town. It was the community center. It was the heart and soul of their community. And he cared for them enough to build this for them. Again, not the one behind me, but the one made out of black volcanic 
um, basalt rock. He valued life the same way God values life. And he saw people's needs and their desires, and he cared about it. <clears throat> so that's the first characteristic that I think touched Jesus, touched the heart of Jesus. The second characteristic is that obviously he was able to get along with others. He was able to be a blessing even to those who were different from him. There was a Roman garrison in, in um, Capernaum, like I said. And if you, listen, if you heard my first one about the Sea of Galilee and the Galilean area, we talked about how Galileans were zealots. <laughs> Galileans were feisty. They did not like this um, occupied territory. They did not like the Romans occupying their land. And they were always cooking up a revolt. <laughs> they were zealous for the overthrow of Rome. So by all natural thought, he should have been an enemy of these people. He should have viewed them as the enemy. But the elders of the Jews were obviously his friends. They're the ones who came and asked Jesus, will you help this man? So a characteristic of this Roman centurion that makes me so impressed with him is that he could relate to those who were not like him and be generous to them and bless them. When Israel was, re, was established, when the, when the diaspora was over and the Jews all came flooding back to the land, when the state of Israel was established in 1948, people came from 120 nations, speaking 83 languages. <laughs> Israel today is a major melting pot of Jews, Muslims, Arabs, Druze, Christians, Catholic, Orthodox, Evangelicals. Um, it's a very... Fractured land is very much divided up. But the heart of God is that we are able to relate to others that are not exactly like us. That we can reach out to them and find something in common and care about their needs. So that's something that I think Jesus saw in the centurion and it drew Jesus to him. It's something I want to see more in my life. Okay, then number three, the third characteristic of the centurion is that he understood the priorities of God. Genesis 12.3 is God's promise to Abraham of his purpose in bringing forth this race of the Jews. Genesis 12.3, And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Somehow this centurion understood that the Jews had a place in God's plan. They weren't just people to be driven out of their land so Rome could have more land. He saw that they had a place. And the Jews, the Pharisees, who had the law, who had the writings of Moses, who had the prophets, they didn't get it. <laughs> Religion often gets in the way of seeing God's plan. Did you know that? <laughs> Religion. Here, here we have a Gentile, a Roman, who gets it. That if you bless God's people, you'll be blessed. <laughs> he saw that that blessing was to be for all people. And if you bless God's people, you'll be blessed. He understood the promise to Abraham better than the Jewish leaders understood. <clears throat> I want to understand God's plan and purpose, don't you? I want to get what God is about, what his priority is. Okay, then the fourth one, which 
is, is what this story is all about. Faith. Faith. That's the understatement of the year. His faith is so great, it even amazes Jesus. Very rare. In Nazareth, we learned last time in our last session, his people, his own people, had no faith. No faith. In fact, they wanted to throw him off the cliff, didn't they? Now, from a Roman, the Roman says, you say it, it's done. (laughs) How this must have blessed the heart of Jesus as he encountered unbelief, unbelief, unbelief everywhere. This must have been like a drink of ice-cold water to him. (laughs) And it must have lifted him up because I know in his humanity there were times Jesus got discouraged when he just met hard hearts, religiosity, and unbelief everywhere he went. Um, Isaiah 53 says that Jesus was a man, the Messiah to come, which we know is Jesus, was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And I believe one of his sorrows, he came to give all, but it was met by unbelief. You know, Jesus has given all. He has done it all. He provides it all. But if we won't receive it because of unbelief, there's nothing he can do. He can't believe for us. He has given us everything. Our, our only job is to believe and receive. So unbelief hurts him. It hurts the heart of God. He comes to bless, to forgive, to heal, to deliver. And he's met time and time again with doubt, rationalization, pride, intellectualization, fear, hard hearts, you name it. So if you want to bless Jesus today, you want to know how you can bless your Lord, simply believe. Like I said, it's like a cup of cold water. Simply take all your fears and your doubts and say, Lord, this hurts you, and I want to bless you. I want to bless you, not so you commend me. I would like, I would like to give you joy today by saying, Lord, I believe. And if you say it, it's done. <clears throat> Hebrews 11.6 tells us that without faith, it's impossible to please God, right? So so I am being scriptural here. God can be pleased. (laughs) God can be blessed by your faith. It isn't just so you get blessed. Don't you want to bless God today? And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. God longs to have compassion on you. God longs to give to you all that he has. But he can't give it to you if you won't receive it through faith. Amen? So I want more of this in my life. I want this. I've, I've come to hate my own unbelief. It's a terrible sin. <laughs> it's a terrible sin. Um, Mark 9. Let's go there for a second. <clears throat> just kind of thought about this the other day. Oh, this is where the disciples are trying to deal with the little boy where a demon um, takes hold of him and throws him into the, to the ground and, and sometimes into the fire. Verse 19, he says, Oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I put up with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. Then as you go um, 
little further in the story, he deals with the boy's father to find out what is really the root, the core of this problem. And in verse 23, finally, um, the father is convicted. Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the boy's father cried out and began saying, I do believe. Help my unbelief. That's a, that's a great prayer. If you're struggling with doubt today, I know you can't just flip a switch and go from the doubt you have to being exactly like the centurion, but this is a great prayer to begin with. Lord, I have a little bit of faith. Help my unbelief. Lord, I believe, but I know my, my belief isn't where it should be. But help my unbelief. God will meet you there. You move an inch, he'll move a mile. It's a great prayer. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Um, Jesus says to this man, I have not found such faith in all of Israel. Such bittersweet words. Here Jesus, the God, God Almighty, in human form, is in their presence, moving from place to place, pouring himself out. And he says, those I came to, my own biological brethren, my own people, have not demonstrated this kind of faith. I haven't found it in all of Israel. Bittersweet words. Now later, he cursed Capernaum for its unbelief. That, that takes place in Matthew 11.20. I told you um, in the Galilee um, session that these three towns, Capernaum and then Chorazin, a little bit to the north, and Bethsaida, a little bit to the northeast, form the triangle of ministry where Jesus did most of his miracles, where he spent most of his time, these three little villages. And he names all three of them. Remember now, these are where he did most of his recorded miracles. And in Matthew 10, starting with verse um, 20, um, Did I get that right? 11, not 10, 11, I'm sorry. Then he began to reproach the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which were big cities that were um, like Chicago, New York, Seattle, (laughs) think Portland today, If the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You shall descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. So that's the environment where we find this Roman centurion, a place that Jesus says it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than for this place. For one reason only, their unbelief. But this man stood apart. Even though he was a Gentile, he shows us what it means to be a son of Abraham. Remember, God spoke to Abraham, and it says, Abraham, what? Believed, and it was counted to him as righteousness. 
You want to know how to be righteous today? Believe. (laughs) Believe. The righteous man lives by faith. This man understood better than the Jews who worshipped in the synagogue what it means to be a son of Abraham. Hmm. Yeah, Romans 4, 16. You see why I'm saying he's become one of my heroes? See why I'm saying I want to be more like him? I want these characteristics in my life. Romans 4, 16. For this reason it is by faith that it might be in accordance with grace in order that the promise may be certain to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, a father of many nations I have made you, in the sight of him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. Or some translations say, calls those things that are not as though they were. So, Abraham is the father of many nations. Anyone who believes the way Abraham did. So this centurion walking around in Capernaum in the midst of all these Jews was more a son of Abraham than they were. Because he had the characteristic that makes you a son of Abraham. Faith. Then Galatians 3. Oh man, I'm convicted by the centurion. Galatians 3, <clears throat> verses um, 6 and 7. Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. That's a um, quote from the Old Testament, uh, Genesis 15:6. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. If you have faith today, you're a son of Abraham. That's your identity. You're part of the family. Okay, then the fifth. Okay, let's, let's see what we've seen so far. First, he saw the needs of people. He saw them as God sees them, regardless of culture, regardless of social taboos, um, regardless if they were in society, had a lower status than, than he did. He saw their need and he cared about it. He had the heart of God. Number two, he was able to get along with others. He was able to be a blessing even to those different from him. Even those who should have been his enemies, he chose to bless them. Number three, he understood the priorities of God, that if he blesses the people of God, blessing will come back to him. Amen? Number four, faith, which we've just spoken about. So now I'm going to get to the fifth one, his humility. If you read the story carefully, you know, if, if I were to recount this story without looking at the scripture, I would say, oh yeah, this, this Roman centurion came to Jesus and he said, please heal my, my slave. But that's not how it reads. It reads that the Jewish elders, he sent some Jewish elders and asked them to ask Jesus to heal his slave. And then, as Jesus is going to his house, he sends friends <laughs> to report to him the message that the centurion wants to say to Jesus, Lord, you don't have to even come. If, if I, I understand authority, if you just say the word, it'll be done. You don't have to bother yourself. He didn't even go to meet Jesus himself. He sent messengers. You know, as a centurion, you would expect him to be proud and arrogant and say, hmm, I'm going to go see this teacher that everyone's talking about. Um, 
But he understood the authority that Jesus had, and he humbled himself before it. Remember, he's a Roman centurion. Centurion means you're over 100 soldiers. It was a place of great status in this time, in this place. But he didn't see himself the way society saw him. He saw himself as a humble worshiper, a humble believer, who was not even going to bother Jesus. <clears throat> Peter had to be there. Um, Peter was hanging out with Jesus. He was in the inner circle. I wonder if Peter watched this and saw this characteristic of the centurion. Later, Peter writes in his first epistle, 1 Peter 5, he says <clears throat> here, 1 Peter 5, verse 5, You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. Maybe this experience in Capernaum came back to Peter when he was writing his epistle, remembering he had seen an example of extreme humility and, and the blessing that it brought. So how was this man exalted? He was exalted by being commended by Jesus. He was placed in the Bible as an example to us. And his servant got healed. So his humility was rewarded, wasn't it? Just as Peter writes about. So if you go with me to Capernaum, we, we will go to the synagogue and we'll sit in there and we'll have a Bible study but we're not too much impressed with this synagogue. Like I said, it was built in the 4th century. Beautiful limestone that was brought in from Greece or somewhere probably in Europe. This isn't the stone that you find in Israel and Galilee. You find black, uh, rough, volcanic rock. So when we look for Jesus, we want to look down. <laughs> That's what I always tell the group. You want to see, find Jesus and say, oh, I want to be where Jesus walked? Don't be impressed with this synagogue that's here behind me. Look down. Look underneath it. Look at the foundation stones. That was the synagogue of Jesus' day. Look at the Roman centurion. Look for faith. Look for what is simple and humble. The heart of God for his people, for Israel. I find Jesus in this man's life, and I want more of the characteristics he had in my life. Amen? So God bless you today. Thanks for going with me to Capernaum. Uh, next time we're going to go to Chorazin. We're going to see the, the uh, ruins of an actual synagogue from the first century that will look more like the synagogue of Jesus' time. And we'll talk about Jesus' relationship with the synagogue. So hope to see you in Chorazin. As I watch the world around me, I can see his from the seed of Abraham. And led them through the wilderness into the promised land. In boundless love and mercy, he gave his only son who became the sacrifice.